what's a pattern that you hope your lineage breaks? What's one of the best decisions you ever made and why? What key lesson or lessons do you think you've been here to learn and how's it going? Hey everyone, welcome to Grand Exit the Podcast. You're here with Tamitha and Chelsea for a deep diving conversation guided by 40 living questions. So today we're talking about legacy questions to ask your loved ones while they're alive, not only to get the question answered, but to create a shared memory of a meaningful conversation. The rationale? So the lives of those who matter most don't leave you wondering. Let's dive in. Tamitha and I are going to run through some of the questions we've created and put into a template to share with you. So if you're inspired to get into conversation with your loved ones, you can find a link in perpetuity in our Instagram bio. We're grand.exit on Instagram, and we'll keep the template for 40 living questions there for you to download at any time. And we encourage you to jump in completely your way and encourage you to not answer any that don't honor you, the person you're interviewing, or the relationship you have together. I like to play a little game with my aging relatives to see how their answers kind of track over time. So I've asked the same question pretty much every time I've gone home to visit. Mm. My papa, who's 93, I'll say, what's your favorite meal? Mm. And every time, consistent. He can't remember what he ate for breakfast, but he'll always say army food <laughs> every time. That's and so when I would ask it to my grandy, hers changed all the time. Mm. She was an adventurous liver, right? Mm. Like she was an adventurous eater, but she like was, oh, goat cheese. There's this new, more people, more and more people are eating beets. Have you tried beets? <laughs> and it, it said so much about the way they live their lives. My grandpa's a very classic man. No right. trying to change him. <laughs> right. You know, he wants his pickled herring and army food. Oh, Ugh, not for me, but that's him. And so mm. it's a memory that I have, but it's a memory I really have because I engage with it. Every time. Yeah, yeah. every time. And, and in painting a picture of who he was one day when he's not here, Maybe it's not a key detail in under who cares what he ate, maybe, but it says a lot about who he is and was. And so these questions are meant to inspire shared experiences and and so collective memories to live on. Tell me about growing up. Grab a cup of coffee and sit back. The year was <laughs> for me what I would want you to know about my growing up is that I grew up a soldier's daughter, which meant that, you know, my dad was in the army and we moved all the time. By the time I graduated from high school, I had lived in eight different houses, eight different places all over the place. Some might say that was chaotic. It actually ma matched my personality. I was always up for the challenge, always up for meeting new people and saying goodbye to friends, you know, and knowing that around the corner, I would be able to meet new ones. Even in high school, I went to two different high schools in Germany. But growing up was just that. It was a lot of, uh, a lot of new experiences, getting to know different places, different cultures. My mom was a school teacher. I had a little brother. Tyler. 
and we got into lots of trouble together. <laughs> but when I was in seventh grade and we were living in Germany, we adopted my older brother. So all of a sudden then I became the middle child, which changed the dynamics a bit. Uh, but we adopted my brother Noom, uh, who was a student of my mother's. It's sort of like when people ask me how I knew I only wanted one child, and it's just that I felt like my family was done, like we were complete. I feel like Noom completed our family. But growing up was good. I, I loved it. Even though we would move all the time, the first rooms to be unpacked and set up were the bedrooms. My parents, bless their hearts, never got new furniture. All the furniture always looked, so it always felt like home, even though it was in a different location. I could go on and on, of course, like most people could, but I think that's what I would, the, it was good. Life was good growing up, great childhood. How was love expressed? Uh, that's an easy question for me. We had in our family uh, what we called Circe's, I don't know where that term comes from. I know that my parents, when they were dating and early in their marriage, they would give Circe's to each other, but they're little tokens of love and appreciation. And so love was really shown in many ways, but our family's special way was through Circe's. So I can remember very clearly my mom uh, always giving a Circe before a big game. Well, was it a physical token? It could be like one Cersei was a dime and my mom painted with pink nail polish an M for mom on it. Oh. So like they were little, like they weren't expensive gifts. You know, they were like little token, like found objects, you know, that you would find around the house or find out in nature and you would give them to whomever. And it's also clear in my family, and we joke about this a lot, that if you were having a really, really good day or a really, really bad day, it either meant um, a good meal out, like you would go out for dinner or mom would cook you something special or like you got a new outfit. <laughs> so I remember uh, when Doug Pyatt broke up with me, um, I was devastated. Screw you, Doug. <laughs> I was devastated. And I still remember this light blue and yellow Benetton outfit that my mom took me out to buy that afternoon after school so I could arrive the next day looking really very good. <laughs> and I did. It was so important to me. I, I, I mean, down to the shoes, I remember everything. But yeah, I believe you because I know about that outfit. <laughs> it's important <laughs> enough that this is not the first time I'm You're hearing of it in our three-year friendship. <laughs> But that was, I think that was how love was expressed. I mean, it was also expressed verbally. I mean, we really were very open and huggy and I love you. And so, yeah, but I would, I would say those, the Circe's and definitely good food. I love this. I'm, I'm learning so much. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. We're moving on. Okay. Uh -oh. Into reflections from adulthood. Uh, You're an adult. Almost 50. What's one of the best decisions you ever made and why? After I finished undergraduate school, I moved back home. I wanted to take a year off and then go to graduate school. I was living with my parents. I was working at the Olive Garden uh, waiting tables. 
and applying to graduate school and studying for the GRE and all of that stuff. And I ended up applying to a few schools. I had my dream school, which was NYU. They did not let me in and I was devastated, but the University of Alabama let me in. And my focus was um, to earn a graduate degree in women's studies. And I saw myself very much doing that work at NYU. That was my path, right? So I was supposed to take a year off and then I was supposed to go to graduate school and then all the things that would follow from there. And so I told my parents I was not going to graduate school. And at that point, my parents were moving back east to Washington, D.C. And um, I was going to stay in Washington State because I had met this guy. I just felt like I needed to stay and see where this was going to go. Um, at that point, I don't think we had, had even started dating. Um, but I, there was just something about me feeling like I needed to stay. So it, it was the best decision for me because of everything that unfolded after that decision. I'm proud of the decision because it was the first time really I said, this isn't part of my plan and that's okay. Everything will be all right. And as you know, that I actually did end up marrying that guy and having a family together. So <laughs> you can meet the love of your life at the Olive Garden. <laughs> And that's where we end this podcast, sponsored by the Olive Garden. Sponsored by the OG. <laughs> if you could go back and live one year of your life over without changing anything, what year would it be? <laughs> it's so funny. Because it's so e easy for me to answer that question. That would be my 40th year. Why? I had so much fun that year. And part of that was, you know, my husband, John, worked really hard to make sure that that birthday was really special for me. I had worked really hard to lose a bunch of weight. And so I was feeling really strong and really good in my body and hadn't felt that way in a long time. John and I went to Portland, Maine for a long weekend and we saw Mumford and Sons. We went to we went back to Maine later that summer with Audra and her family for a week and uh, stayed in a, a tiny little house right on the beach in Ocean Park, Maine that her grandfather had helped to build. It was just such a special place to be. It was just a fun summer, a ton of dancing that year, a ton of music, a ton of being in really special places. And I felt good in my body. Yeah. And I, Harper was happy and healthy. Like it was just, everyone was in a good spot. Okay. I'm going to pull it together. This person. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> For those not in studio, Tamitha is crying. Here we are again. One of us is crying. And I'm learning so much that I didn't know about I know. I, I just I can't wait to ask you questions, too. What resources, internal or external, have you drawn from when life is hard? I tend to need to talk. I have a well of friends who are there and understand my need just to talk things out and to be heard. I also love good food. <laughs> it's 
So that may not be always the best coping skill. But to me, if I can make a beautiful, nourishing meal that either I'm enjoying or my family is enjoying, it's almost like a reset button for me. So you know things are really out of control in my life if all we're doing is takeout. But when I'm feeling sort of centered and when I need to get centered, I I think it's sort of going back to the basics that I know my mom, my grandmother, my great-grandmother all went back to, which is, which doesn't sound necessarily womanist or feminist, but back in the kitchen. (laughs) I think also, and this has become especially true through cancer, I do call on my better angels and my spirit guides and my ancestors who I know are surrounding me. I talk out loud to them and ask for their grace and their wisdom. And here's the part where if you're conducting this interview or you're on the other end of this conversation with someone important in your life, feel free to depart from the list. Feel free to not use the script. Feel free to ask why and take the conversation in a totally different direction. How did you find your better angels and spirit guides? What ancestors do you think are there? And questions such as that, this isn't meant to be a documentary that paints a perfect image (laughs) of the woman that is Tamitha Thomas Hossie. It's it's not meant to be that. It's meant to be messy. It's meant to be a slice of life, a moment in time, who you not were your whole life, but who you are today Mm -hmm. in 2022, who, who you are looking back and who you remember yourself to be and what you project into the future. Are there any recipes or meals you want us to continue making in your honor? Well, I would say there are two two recipes. It must have been after John and I were married. I got this cookbook from my mom and it's handwritten. My mom has horrible debilitating arthritis. So I know what it must have taken for her to handwrite all these recipes. But having her handwriting on these recipes, it's unbelievable, but a full cookbook. But each section is divided with old pictures of me. And so it starts with like a picture of my mom when she was pregnant with me and then baby and then all the way through. And in that cookbook, there are two recipes. One is my granny's sugar cookie recipe and the other is my granny's banana bread recipe. Those are two things I think I, I think my family would remember that I made often. What wisdom would you like to impart solicited advice to future (laughs) generations? So much. uh, But here's one thing I will say. Don't worry about losing the weight. If I could count the amount of time and energy and focus I put on somehow needing to lose weight, I, I just think about how much more energy and time I would have had thinking about the important stuff. I I tried every diet. I tried all the fads, spent so much money. You know, I joke now that cancer has finally given me <laughs> the body that I wanted all this time. And my oncologist, every time I see her, is like, you know, you're losing too much weight. And I'm like, mm, am I? <laughs> am I? Um, 
I just think, oh, Tamitha, you spent so much time worrying about that. And you were perfect. What's the stuff that good relationships in your life are made of? I think what they're made of is all the stuff, the good and the bad, and being okay with that. That when I'm in relationship with anyone, I want to bring my whole self to that relationship and have to feel safe doing so. So that means that I'm not always going to be at my best. I'm going to want you to call me out and be honest about things that I'm not doing well or right by you. And I'm going to allow them to do the same. That um, there's imperfection. I guess maybe that's what's in all of the relationships. Imperfection. And that we're all, there's some um, gentle empathy around we're all just trying to do our best with what we've been given. And so for me, coming at any relationship in that spirit helps, I think, and I hope everyone in my life show up just as they are, not as they think I need them to be. It wasn't always like that, believe me, especially with Harper and John. Harper, (laughs) I think, would say just in the last couple of years, is she feeling like she can show up as she needs to show up with me? John and I, I think, have worked really hard to be who each other needs in an imperfect way. So maybe that's my, that it's just imperfection and that that's okay and beautiful and also hard. (laughs) (laughs) So now you're in the hot seat. First, thank you for those questions. Not only were they good questions, but um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to answer them. Thanks for taking it. We'll start with the same bucket growing up. And for the sake of sharing the different questions with listeners, I I won't ask you the same, although later maybe I might ask you (laughs) the same question. You asked me, what lessons were stressed in your household when you were growing up? And how did those impact you into adulthood? A really strong one was like, please and thank you. The politeness, um, the respect in the house. You help, you you say please and thank you. You clear your plate. Basic politeness was really important. The others were (laughs) so much fun. There was a layer of fun to everything that we did. Our life was really a party. And my mom would say, life's a beach. But it was. Our backyard was where it was the home of not only our birthday parties, but our cousins' birthday parties. We had a revolving door of visitors. Um, my parents weren't proprietary over who taught us lessons. I think that's probably the, de- the defining thing of our household. It was like maybe the door was locked, but everybody had a key that could need one. We lived on a lake. Our neighbors would climb over the fence and be like, do you want to go on the lake? Knock, knock, knock on the back door. And we always had to ask permission, but there were, it was just always a party. Even cleaning, everything was a party. Everything was just, it can be fun, so why shouldn't it be? But <laughs> you step out of line, 
timeout was definitely a very real threat in the home. Yeah. And also my parents worked very, very, very full time and they're both kind of workaholics. Their careers were really important to them. So I think like ruthless prioritization, it's not something that we could see as kids, but they delegated like maniacs. Mm. How have those lessons impacted your adulthood? They were totally defining. I mean, the irony is not lost on me that I run an adult summer camp inspired <laughs> transformational experience infused with fun and games and bringing that rem reminder that life, however hard it can be, can you find joy in it? Can you find fun in it? Sometimes no, but wherever you can, can you? That's definitely there. And I, I will say like there are shadow parts of all of these amazing things. Not everything's meant to be fun. You know, it doesn't have to be fun to be great, but I definitely carry that with me. Yeah, the revolving door is probably, again, like the number one thing that I carry with me. I feel the most alive. And Pete, my husband and I share this. Bigger table than we'll need. Fine if the bedroom's small, whatever, wherever we're moving. But like common spaces, as large as we can get them. <laughs> and blow up mattresses, like pillows, blankets, wherever we can put someone. If there's someone in town, just having our home be the center of our community as an option is probably the, the biggest thing I took with me. What was the most rebellious thing you did as a young person? Hilarious. I was such a goody two-shoes. I'm like almost <laughs> embarrassed to answer the question. I pulled a prank on court on my younger sibling. We were like, really big American Idol season one fans. And at the time of American Idol season one, my mom drove a minivan, which was like her nightmare, actually, like total nightmare. It was a Honda Odyssey and it had a DVD player. And we didn't have any DVDs. We didn't have a DVD player in our house. We bought a couple of DVDs to play in the car. One was Rat Race. The other, that my mom knew all the words to Rat Race, but never saw the movie because it would play in the car. And the other was American Idol season one. And we were just like diehard. And Court really wanted to go to see American Idol. And so I guess they had entered a competition or something to like win tickets. <laughs> and I wrote them a letter on April Fool's that they had won tickets. Oh. Yeah. If I remember correctly, Court tried to punch me in the face <laughs> at the bottom of the letter that said April Fool's. It probably wasn't the most rebellious thing I did, but it was like, it was a little out of character. And then into my teenage years and certainly more into my 20s. College relaxed me for sure. <laughs> moving into my 20s, I certainly had more wild adventures. I just didn't have to come home to my parents' house after. <laughs> what are some of the things you've been afraid of? success and failure at their highest degrees, I think. Not living up to my potential. Mostly that. Most things ladder up to that. Other natural fears of losing loved ones prematurely, for sure. But those don't drive my everyday the same way. I notice that fear kind of fits, finds its way into interstitial moments around work, relationships, the desire to do better is so driving. So on the flip side of that is the fear that I won't. What has made you feel at peace? Times of gathering and celebration, energy of 
being around lots of other people. I went to University of Florida. There were 48,000 students when I went there. And I went to a very small high school. There were less than 500 students when I went there. And um, I had so many amazing experiences along the way. I went on semester at sea, which was a completely life-altering gift. And there were about 600 students there. So at all sizes, when the room felt full, I felt full too, but only when we were together together, not alone together. And but like football games at the University of Florida. I do not care about football. Like, let it be known. I don't care about football. But the spirit of rallying around something with a lot of other people who are rallying around that thing, like any time I could be surrounded by other people who would tap on one another's shoulders or celebrate something together, those make me feel the most alive. And when I feel the most alive, I feel the most at peace. So gathering around, you know, a shared anything really, a shared vision makes me feel really peaceful. Tell me about your first love. Oh man, (laughs) I'm torn. I thought at the time that my first love was Scott Eisenberg. He was a counselor and I was a camper. I had this like secret romance, Uh-oh. but I was way too scared to like engage until after camp anyway. We were two years apart. So it's not, it's not creepy. It's <laughs> camp years are camp years are fake. Different. Yeah. And we dated after camp. I was a senior in high school and he was like a sophomore in college or something. Or the second person I dated in college was probably my first love. And it was so goofy. I was a senior and he was a freshman, but I was just, I was mad about him. And in no world where was that going to be? Felt like such a cougar, Um, but I felt really confident in myself. And I met him at a time that I really knew myself. I knew my love for adventure. I felt really seen by him in that way. And he was so not that way, but I could live my independent path. It did give me a good foundation to, tap into my conviction. Even when things looked super goofy, it didn't need to be explained well. It was the first time I did something that wasn't according to the rule book that just looked super bizarre. And I didn't care what people thought about it. I really didn't. That probably was my first real love. I want to do two more. (laughs) You can. What key lesson or lessons do you think you've been here to learn and how is it going? I'll point out this is where I think this is what keeps me from starting things like this. Like, how could I, what's the best possible answer I could say? And that is probably the key lesson I have to learn. Like exactly where I am with exactly what I have is enough. Mm. I might listen to this and be like, stupid answer. There are bigger lessons. What about this one? I'm sure I'll think of more later, but that's what's coming. And so that's what's enough that I have everything I need inside myself. And what I don't, I have the wits about me to ask, mm-hmm. you know, and how's it going? <laughs> well, I hear my inner critic, inner critic <laughs> while I hear my inner voice. So okay it's going okay <laughs> it's going okay <laughs> i think because i notice it it's going probably going better, better than yeah better than not
what's a pattern that you hope your lineage breaks? Boundaries, interconnected boundaries. There are many, many very beautiful things that my family has. Probably paramount among them is intergenerational connection. Even when we buy cards for each other, it's like I could pick from any card on the shelf. If it's like mother, sister, aunt, friend, brother, and just cross out the relationship and give it to any one other person in my family. And actually, we often do that. There's something kind of bizarre about that. We have very shape-shifting relationships. And um, and as such, we celebrate each other's wins like they're our own mm-hmm. and losses. Like we're totally in the trenches together. But I think that boundary work is really important because you can't all be down at the same time when that's your support system. <laughs> the emotional boundaries around that is this person's experience and this person's lesson to learn. I think my mom and dad did a really good job about that when we were kids. They were not helicopter parents at all. They let us fail. Mm. They celebrated our successes for sure. And they weren't, they totally weren't like, look at my kid. We did this. Nothing Mm. like that. Mm -hmm. But in adulthood, as, as life's boundaries got less clear, right? It's not like a kid in middle school celebrating this. It's like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. How can we fix it? And I appreciate that so much to know I have the support. But also, it's a little unhealthy. (laughs) It's a little unhealthy. And when my parents are experiencing difficulties in their lives, it's sometimes hard for me to, the empathy starts bleeding into my productivity, my presence in my life. Yeah. I'd like for our lineage to take on some boundary work. That's how I'll turn that one into action. Yeah. Yeah. I know I said that was the last question, but let's do the other side of the coin on this question, which is what is the pattern you hope? And maybe it's the same response in some ways, but what is the pattern you hope lives on? Yeah, intergenerational relationships, no no hierarchy, democratic foundation for the, the familial relationship, listening to each other, togetherness in so many different aspects, the sharing. So that was our sample of the 40 living questions we hope that you'll take on or go off script from Mm -hmm. or use as a jumping off point to write your own with someone in your life who matters to you. You can find these questions on Instagram at grand.exit. The link will be in our bio and we graciously offer them to you and hope you'll share them with anyone who will get talking. That's really what we're hoping for here that more people are engaging in their aliveness, right? They're living, they're dying, and they're living on by getting real about history today, personal history today. And so 40 questions is a lot of questions maybe, but what if you started with one? What if you moved on to one from each section? What if you started with one and then made up your own sections? Whatever. Do it your way, but do it. Yeah, don't wait to do an interview if you feel like you want to be the interviewee. Grab someone and tell them you want to tell a story, (laughs) which I've been known to do. (laughs) Mostly when I have someone trapped in the car with me. (laughs) Everybody has a layer deeper than you probably know. If you want to be living in a way that is engaging 
with the realest version of those in front of you and you bringing that part of you to the table, no matter what others may think, save some of these. And whatever you take around with you, your phone, your bag, whatever, your pocket, and ask some good questions so that you're not filling the air with stuff that is disconnected from the shared experience that matters to you. We'll be right back with the rest. Inspiration for living from Matters About Dying. For those of you who feel compelled to go further than we took you with our 40 living questions, check out StoryWorth. My brother and sister-in-law gave this as a gift to my parents-in-law last Christmas, and over the course of one full year, they received and answered questions about their life. They simply replied with an email each week, and at the end of the year, their stories were bound into a beautiful keepsake book. If this calls, visit StoryWorth.com. Thank you for listening to Grand Exit. If you're enjoying exploring the life-death-legacy continuum, come back to keep diving in with us here. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on Instagram. We're grand.exit. And sign up for our newsletter at grandexit.com slash newsletter. And most importantly, share. Please do share this by starting a conversation about life, death, and legacy with someone who matters to you. There's so much waiting for you there. Join us every other Thursday as we bring death to life for those who intend to be remembered. Catch you next time.